Hi there, I'm Dr. Trevor Cates. Welcome to the Spot Actor Podcast. Do you ever feel like you have difficulty focusing or that your mind is racing so much that it's impacting your ability to hear people or get your work done? It happens to all of us, really, especially with all the texting, social media, and really everything electronic we have at our fingertips today. But it's possible that you have a condition called ADHD. This isn't just something found in children, although we oftentimes see this show up when kids have difficulty focusing in school. But it also, also often goes undiagnosed in adults. So on today's podcast, we're discussing ADHD, how to know if you have it, what to do to help you regain focus and attention. And this is great for whether you're an adult or if you maybe you have a child that you're concerned about as well. My guest is Dr. Parth Gandhi, who attended University of Michigan and then received his doctorate degree in neuropsychology from Brigham Young University. While there, he was able to conduct research in the fields of clinical psychology, developmental neuropsychology, family systems, and leadership development. And then he continued postdoctoral training at Columbia University in New York City and worked as a leadership consulting, helping C-level executives understand and hack their strengths to make up for their deficits. Dr. Gandhi understands the ADHD mind from a personal perspective and has used the gifts of creativity and fluid reasoning to help adult and adolescent clients recognize their potential. His main interest is neuropsychological assessment, and he uses a client-centered approach to fully understand how the mind works, to define strengths and weaknesses, and create a treatment plan that is individualized for the client. He lives in Salt Lake City, Utah, where he is also a yoga, meditation, and mindfulness teacher. In this interview, we discuss the signs and symptoms of ADHD, as well as how to test for and treat it. We go beyond the typical medication-focused treatment to focus on a more holistic approach to ADHD. So please enjoy this interview. Parth, it's great to have you on my podcast. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so we're talking about ADHD today, and I know that there's been more awareness of this in both children and adults, and I think a lot of times uh, people think of it as something that kids struggle with, and they think about with kids, but certainly adults have it, and that often goes undiagnosed, right? Uh, so I wanted to bring people's awareness to this, and so they can be they, they can be aware of it, and then find solutions for it to to really help optimize their performance, right? Absolutely, yeah. So some might be diagnosed. Maybe uh, some of your you know listeners are are diagnosed in childhood, but a lot of times um, they're looking at their own children. They're seeing signs and symptoms, and now it's uh, it's a more identified disorder than ever before, and so. Uh, they're seeing it, they're diagnosing it, they're finding treatment for their children, and some of those adults are saying, oh wait, some of this applies to me. You know, maybe this was me as a child, but definitely I have some of the same problems or I'm having what we call executive functioning problems now in later life. And so those adults are now looking, looking to address the same issues. Right. And so why is this, why do you feel this is so important? Like you personally, why have you focused a lot of your attention on this? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And I've spoken a lot about how I've personally gone through my own path that uh, where ADHD has accompanied me my whole life. I really didn't, I guess, self-diagnose until I was in late in graduate school and then didn't really find treatments um, because I really, my ego, my sort of own process didn't allow me to seek treatment. Despite learning about it and treating others, I it took a long time for me to find it. But, you know, I, I found a lot of uh, attention problems. You know, I fit the inattention model, not the hyperactive model as a child. I was a kid that was really smart, but uh, after reading a page of text, especially in, in a real textbook, I thought, I don't know what I just read because I didn't have the working memory to encode it. And so, I, I mean, it took a lot of accommodations, a lot of figuring out. And, and I think finally, you know, in my private practice, I've been able to show that to other people to really empathize with both, you know, children, adolescents and adults in their own process of how they misinformation their environment, which then turns into maybe social issues or work issues, you know, definitely academic problems. So I guess I come to it from a, a very personal understanding as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing that. What, so let's talk about what exactly is it? What are like the signs, the key signs of it? How is someone diagnosed with ADHD? Absolutely. So, um, First of all, it has to be a clinical professional, a pediatrician, a psychologist, maybe a psychiatrist that does an assessment to really look at what's going on. Um, a lot of that is developmental history and a current understanding of behavioral functioning, but there are specific tests that help us uh, look at attention symptoms, working memory symptoms, what we call mental control, processing speed. Those are different features that we evaluate for the specific diagnosis of ADHD. But in the ICD-10, or what we call the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that psychiatrists and psychologists use, we have a, a bunch of set criteria that we're looking for. The first one is, did those symptoms exist uh, as a child? Um, and so if we're evaluating an adult, that's one of the first questions, because if they didn't, and a person is having attention problems, then it could be something else. And that's, I think, a very um, a common misunderstanding that other things like anxiety, depression can have significant attention problems. Even sleep disturbance can cause a significant amount of attention problems. But that said, and going back to your question, the specific diagnosis has to do with a bunch of a set of criteria, and we classify it in different uh, sections. One is inattention, and then hyperactivity or impulsivity, and then there's a combined type. So there's three types: inattention, hyperactivity, or combined. Um, and um, most children fit in the category of combined, you know, and then most adults, it's more, it evolves, and about 15% of kids that were diagnosed or diagnosable retain those symptoms into adulthood, and, and uh, but if that evolves. They learn to accommodate, usually it's just symptoms of inattention and executive functioning deficits, um, yeah. Yeah, and so these can certainly, I mean, when you're talking about these symptoms, they can certainly interfere, you know, they come up a lot with kids because they can't participate in school, but in adults, it can, it can come up uh, with work, with social activities, with relationships, a lot of things they can struggle with because of these, these symptoms. Absolutely. If you think of just the core symptoms, 
uh, inattention. Inattention is the inability to look or sort of retain information. You know, it's if I if I gave you an example to remember a phone number. You know, if I said it to you and you said it back, but then I also want you to say it backwards. So you have mental control over that information, and you can use that in your short-term memory. Um, if you can't retain that information, let's now talk about a social situation, right? Because often we're thinking about academic situations where a teacher is teaching a child. But in a social situation, if a person doesn't um, accumulate this, the, the information non-verbally or verbally from a setting, they're gonna start making errors. And especially as an adolescent, uh, most kids aren't very forgiving of a situation where, you know, and so you get, and, children being marginalized and creating more psychiatric issues like depression, anxiety, or isolation, you know, and so a child really diverts. And so it might start as a mild attention problem. Um, and now it becomes other things. It morphs into greater issues and then at, into adolescence and adulthood. You know, I think if I could take a slight tangent, I think one of the most primitive responses we have as humans is to find tribe to find connection and to feel accepted. And when one doesn't buy their group, uh, you know, in their, in their childhood going to school, and even if they don't find it, maybe with parents, you know, who are kind of dismissive of that fidgety, inattentive kid, that kid is gonna go find it somewhere, somehow. And so parents always wonder, how did we get here when I'm looking at an at-risk team? that's maybe using substances or is really oppositional and doesn't fit at home. And it's an evolution, you know? And so finding these symptoms really early is important, but if they're not found, then then treating the other issues like the depression, the social issues, it's really important later in life because it, it morphs into other things. Okay. Well, obviously, you know, this is something you, it's good to identify sooner than later, but, um, you know, we can address it any time. So let's talk about what, what is the, what are the treatment options for this? What, what are the things that are really showing a lot of promise? I mean, I think a lot of times people hear about the medications, but there's so much more than that that's available to people. For sure. Yeah. And, and, you know, um, Maybe we won't talk about the medications as primary. I think a lot of people want the holistic, the homeopathic options, as well as behavioral conditioning. So starting, say, with therapy or even ADHD coaching, it's creating a structure around um, school, around uh, discipline at home, consistency that children or even adults understand. So that might start with even time management or... Um, uh, learning how to organize and clean a room. I think most ADHD kids, when a parent says, go clean your room, they have no idea what you're talking about. You know, there's this door disorganization in their mind and they go and they might shuffle things around and, you know, and think, all right, it's put away and the floor is cleaned up versus maybe a, a very organized type A personality that really understands, you know, in my own children, I've got the different sets, you know, and it's really interesting to look at one room versus the other and talk to them about what is clean and how do you do that and their own sort of internal combustion, you know, how do I, you know, what do I want for my own space? Um, but yeah, in terms of other treatments, uh, learning organizations, setting up a structure and a scaffold around a student or an adult. Um, yoga, mindfulness, meditation, all of that can really do a lot to 
uh, bring a person present. If you think about the main symptom as attention, right, or inattention, so attention in the moment, right? We have a word for that now. Mindfulness is such the buzzword and the rage, you know, and the whole purpose of, of, of that is to bring your attention to that moment, to live very existentially and in the moment. Um, uh, you know, so if, if you can do that with breathing exercises or very conscious exercises to bring you into a moment, maybe in a conversation or with a teacher, um, learning to do that moment to moment is really important. And obviously for the ADHD brain, even more important. So um, from there, other techniques, of course, in, in school, if I were doing an evaluation, neuropsychological assessment, we call it, um, to, to evaluate all the different cognitive processes and we came to the conclusion of ADHD, then in a school setting, we'd want to give accommodations. Um, those accommodations are very specific to the student because no student is, is exactly alike, but often it includes um, the ability to use more time. If they're, you know, I think you can predict inattentive. That's not something that we're going to automatically correct. But to, to accommodate for that, we can spend more time, give them more time during a test or more time for homework to accommodate for that additional sort of, you know, the, the tangents that they might take or the, the breaks that they might need or standing up and walking around. It might also include giving them like a course syllabus or a, 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 an outline for the day. It might include audio or visual recording so that they can come back to the lecture. Um, you know, that same, you know, again, thinking about accommodations in the workspace. Most people, by the time they get into adulthood, have learned to accommodate for their own specific problems. If not, they continue to trip. You know, they continue to be in a model of failure. So I, if I, it's okay and we're going to start about talking about adulthood, I'd like to talk about executive functioning for a second. And yeah, absolutely. Define that. So ADHD um, usually evolves into what we call executive functioning deficits. And I do a pretty good job on my website of defining, you know, these competencies that, uh, that we call executive functioning skills. Um, but essentially, if we think about these as skills or habits, um, they're the core competencies that allow us to complete a goal-oriented task. So if you, a person has to write an essay paper, and we know it's two months ahead of time, there's going to be lots of research. There's a lot of skills that are necessary to execute on that task and that really big essay paper. First is sort of the idea of initiation and then regulating one's emotions or, or behaviors so that they can focus. On a Saturday afternoon, I'm not going to play. I'm going to actually go to the library. And then from there, it's planning, prioritizing those skills, organizing um, uh, what has to be accomplished. Um, so there's a lot of time management involved. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of skills. And those skills naturally don't get fully developed from an ADHD mind. They, there's typically a, um, a few weaknesses or what we call fatal flaws. Now, in the ADHD mind, there are, of course, strengths. Everybody has strengths. Everybody has weaknesses. And we're looking to use the strengths to overcome the weaknesses. But occasionally, for that student or client that comes into my office, typically there's a fatal flaw. There's something that they just can't get over. They can't turn in papers on time. 
they can't be accountable, they're, they're just, they can't remember certain information. There's some specific complaint, and that's the core competency. That's something that becomes a fatal flaw that they're known by, because usually people are known by their strengths. Known by, oh, you know, John is just so good at communication, he's great with people, or, you know, you know, Susie always turns in things on time, that kind of thing, they're just known by it. But if there's a fatal flaw, they get known by their fatal flaw. And then it becomes, again, other things for that person. So we want to work on those things first. Now, going back and jumping back to your original question about what are we, you know, what are the treatments? Well, executive functioning skill development is really important. So for the ADHD mind, learning these habits. Now, these are not just sort of innate genetic skills that are, that are set in stone, like, say, maybe IQ. Um, these are skills that can be developed, like time management. I can teach a person how to use a planner and then teach them how to uh, list everything that they have to do, prioritize that list, put those certain things into real time over the next week, and then actually execute on them and then become accountable for it at the end of the day to someone. That's the full process of really accountability and time management. Most people generally don't have that, but certainly the ADHD mind even more so because they, I think for the most part, what I found is the ADHD mind thinks when I teach that to them, I'm patronizing them. They think nobody else is doing that. Why do I have to do that? Except that really, everyone else is doing that, right? And so it's a sort of funny paradox for them. And so when I, when I teach that to them, it's this process of over and over creating that kind of specific habit. And again, all of these executive functions are habits. They're skills that can be trained. So an ADHD coach, an executive functioning coach, we do that in our office. I can spend time teaching clients that whole process because really those skills, especially as adolescents and adults, now they, you meet them at the place uh, where psychology meets skill development, executive skill development, because there's often resistance or anxiety. Well, if I did this, what would it mean? Or I don't really, you know, what, what's the intrinsic motivation? And so usually um, I ask that a person see a skilled a facilitator, a trained therapist, even to teach these skills, especially to an adult, because um, you meet with a lot of resistance in learning these skills and changing behavior. So, um, and then I suppose very last on the list um, is medication, is the idea that, um, well, and maybe you could even speak to the homeopathic part. I'm sure you know quite a bit about the, you know, the uh, naturopathic stuff that can, that can work and be helpful to help neurodevelopment and um, activate the brain. But the psychiatry of a typical ADHD mind is that there's a certain part of the brain in the prefrontal cortex that's dormant, that doesn't work. And, and the general model is that that part of the brain is the braking system. So it allows us to slow down and gather information. Um, but if it's not working, then we're not slowing down, we're not getting the information. When we use a stimulant like Ritalin or Adderall, it's, a, it's an activating effect for that, that dormant uh, breaking center so that we can gather more information. Um, so, and it's a pretty simple system and very, very effective. But I think 
um, of course, a psychiatrist, a, a medical professional should be the one that's working with the person to make those recommendations as well. So, right. Absolutely. Yeah. You know what I find? Some of the things that I find most helpful over the years of my practice with, with ADD and you know, ADHD is, um, is really a lot of what I talk about in my book for skin, which is kind of funny, which is identifying food allergies and food intolerances and avoiding those, decreasing inflammation in the body, helping the, the gut uh, issues, because we know that the strong connection between the gut, brain, access, gut, brain, skin access even. Wow. So a lot of those things, if you address those root causes, then, um, you know, blood sugar balance too, a lot, especially we see that a lot with kids that, you know, they eat too much sugar and it's just, it, it could be just a matter of, of cutting back on the sugar and, and cutting out artificial uh, foods that tend to be triggers for some of the behavioral issues. And I, I've definitely seen that even with my own kids, I can't say they've ever been diagnosed with it, but I mean, it just, you know, in general, we live in a very ADD kind of world right now with all the electronics and the stimuli and, and, and just even conversations with people that, you know, they're picking up their phone and they're, you know, they're, they're just, it's like everybody is, they're distracted. There's so many distractions. And so I think that if we if we start with a healthy lifestyle, we keep our keep things balanced, and decrease inflammation, create more balances in our gut and our hormones and our blood sugar, and we keep that we're building it on a better foundation. And then also with the mindfulness stuff, I think is so key. And I know that there are some great tools that uh, I've learned over the years, and um, and my kids too have learned. Um, and being in nature, I think, is powerful as a great way to help because if we're using the, it really encourages us to use the senses, right? When we look at mindfulness of being aware, being very present, and getting back to being present, mm -hmm. um, what are you, what are you feeling in your body? Like, what sensations are you feeling on your skin? You feel the breeze on your skin? Are you hearing the birds? Are you, you know, the the wind through the trees? And and that just kind of brings us back to being present. And I think that so often we forget that. Absolutely. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We, you know, and you're right, the culture that we live in, the swipe culture, the, I, you know, information on demand or, you know, even communication. You know, if I text somebody, I have this expectation that they're right there, right? Why wouldn't they respond right away? And so this information on demand, um, you know, it, it, it does not allow for, deep dives for a lot of thinking, even said, you know, like audiobooks, right? Like listening, listening to things passively versus sitting with a book in a, in a quiet space and reading. So much of our culture has really shifted towards um, immediate gratification as quickly as possible, you know, and so there needs to be a mindful shift back. And because I can't expect it from society, society, you know, the world that all of that comes from is driven by cash flow and capitalization and, and um, within a family unit, you know, within a home, you have to make those mindful decisions of how can we shift the energy, how can we teach mindfulness or embrace the idea of slowing the world down, shutting technology off at a certain time at night and um, removing the distractions, you know, that are, that that cause that create an inattention problem. So 
Um, yeah, know, I think world. that's not just true for kids. I think as adults, we need to do that too. Um, I, I think it's, kids are, I think, are particularly sensitive to it, but mm -hmm. adults are too. And I talk to so many people that say they can't sleep at night. Mm -hmm. And okay, well, how, what, when are you turning off your your phone, your computer? When are you turning off the TV? And um, and and even just something as simple as that can help people with sleep. Um, and then sleep, of course, is the foundation for so much of brain health and focus, attention, and and health in general. And so. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think it's great that you also, you teach yoga and meditation. Um, yeah. I'm sure you don't allow people to bring their, their laptops and their cell phones <laughs> into your classes. So it's a great excuse to turn those things off and take a break from them. Right. Well, absolutely. And if I can, I mean, even to, you know, maybe tr create just a treatment model for, uh, for your viewers at home right now. When I teach yoga, this is how I teach anything. I ask for the, two, the first two or three minutes to close your eyes, to set your intention, to, to increase breathing. All of that changes um, everything about what you're about to learn. You know, setting intention, and that can be prayer for those that are religious. Whatever you need to do to come into a moment set your intention before you go into the moment versus you remember running to class and you're five minutes late and you put your books down and that whole thing was just different the process experience was completely different versus getting there five minutes early setting up breathing being calm opening your book being very prepared and by the way you can do that for other people by being that person or if you're the teacher coming prepared setting that intention you can, this is, you know, in a very small scale, this is why I teach yoga is to change the world in this way, to help people learn that they can take that piece forward. And I just have this vision in my mind that, you know, it's being pushed forward and there's, you know, it's um, extrapolated out into the world. So, but it has to be a very mindful, deliberate effort because everything about the world, social media is drawing you away from mindfulness. And so it has to be a very deliberate process. Yeah, absolutely. So do you have a, a daily practice that, that you use, you recommend to other people? I mean, starting the day, ending the day, what, what are there are certain things that you can recommend for people? Yeah, fantastic. So uh, I'm an early riser. I'm up for 5 a.m. Um, and I like to do a short yoga practice, a mindfulness practice where I'm um, going inward and then I try to listen to something. Um, it might be Alan Watts or Sam Harris. Sam Harris has a great app now called Waking Up. Um, there's lots of ways to find your meditation, you know, or um, that kind of process. It can be a guided meditation or it could simply be going inward. And people are just always confused about that meditation process. I don't know how to do that. Well, it really is at the very basic level, just coming into presence. And so sitting, closing your eyes, creating um, a deep breath process, a cycle of breath. And that might be a five count in and a five count out or longer. Um, and then every time the mind is distracted, being kind and gentle and saying, oh, I'm distracted, let's go back to it. And just, you know, maybe for five or 10 minutes and that can change your day completely, especially if you create a daily practice around it. 
And the same thing at night. I think rituals are very, very important. Uh, we as people are, you know, we're still tribal. And so gathering with your people, maybe before you, you go to sleep and having a ritual, or, you know, if you're at home alone, then certainly just having a specific ritual. And a lot of people have a very specific bedtime ritual that tells the body, I'm going to sleep now. Maybe that's in the bathroom and hygiene related, but maybe before you go to sleep, you do the same thing around breathing and closing your eyes and thinking. Again, for a lot of religious people, that's prayer. That's what prayer is. You know, it's bringing yourself into conscious deliberation, communing with the divine or communing with your own spirit. Um, and then even a short yoga practice at night, again, legs up the wall, waterfall pose can be an inversion, can be so powerful in helping you fall asleep. Simple stretches. And I wouldn't want to be prescriptive here because your body is very intuitive. You know what you need. You know, and so if you're unfamiliar with yoga, you know, and learning how to stretch, then there's lots of things on YouTube. There's gym yoga and learning to stretch. Certainly um, every studio has more basic restorative classes that you can learn in. But those things, um, twisting, helping your body kind of stretch out, um, you'll sleep better, 100%. And as you said, every physician, every psychologist, the first thing that we're looking for is sleep. That, because if sleep is off, if, if, if it's dysfunctional, it can cause depression, anxiety, attention problems, and that can be the main culprit. So I don't want to overdiagnose with someone if that's the main culprit. We want to dial sleep first. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. with with the different practices, there's meditation, there's breath work, there's visualization, mm -hmm. and and they're all a little bit different, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and I'm these are they're probably even more categories than that. You know, I, I'm I think it's sometimes it can be confused. Like, when do you use each? Like, when is when do you find breath work particularly powerful, or do you try and incorporate all of them together? Well, um, that's a great question. I think uh, as I'm teaching yoga, I, like an hour, or an hour and a half class, I try to incorporate all of that. I want to, you know, to use the mind-body connection. I want to help people feel peaceful and soulful, mindful and spiritual when they leave the room. And that obviously is a huge lofty goal. And there's a lot of people like to come to yoga or meditation for different purposes. And by the way, I consider yoga a type of meditation. It's a way to get into your body, to remove the physical anxieties. You know, the asana practice, the physical practice that most people know, is really only 5% of what yoga is, you know, the depths of yoga. And so, but it is a way to release energy and to come into the body. And for those practitioners that, you know, that use yoga in that way, I would recommend you stay in savasana longer in that final uh, relaxation pose, be there longer because the whole practice, the physical practice was to get you there. And now you can truly meditate. Your body's released and you can be in your mind. So uh, some things to consider, but certainly to your question, um, each may have a different purpose. So learning a pranayama technique. Now, everybody feels anxiety. Everybody feels panic. People respond differently to those symptoms and for some it becomes a disorder and so learning a breathing technique that can really be helpful in those spaces where you feel a lot of anxiety so that you can cope and manage 
that is a specific kind of meditation that can be very useful. So, so as you say, people should explore uh, and, and use them as wisely. Right. Figure out what works best for you. Now, it seems to me that a lot of entrepreneurs are have ADHD. Like, did you find that? And I, I think it's really interesting because so it's like looking at this is it's it's not just an, a problem, but it can actually be a beneficial thing because you've got a lot of ideas. <laughs> I think people ADHD is they're like, I'm thinking of this, I'm thinking of that, and and so I think if we can figure out how to really like focus that a little bit, that energy and the ideas and the visions, the creativity that can be very powerful and it can be turning what may look like a curse or a, a problem into uh, something powerful and uh, rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so as I said in the introduction, I have a neuroscience background and a background in, in neuropsychology and also in business leadership. I studied at Columbia Business School. And when I was in New York, I brought all of that together for the benefit of C-level executives, for CEOs, CFOs, because so many of that population do have ADHD problems. I worked at a, a, a very large corporation, a $50 billion corporation, where there are our population, myself and two other exec, uh, psychologists, uh, we were tasked with executive development in any way necessary. And about, I found 20 to 30% had significant attention problems or and it affected their space in different ways. And what we know is, Again, going back to the competency model, strengths, weaknesses, fatal flaws. Many of them had you know, huge strengths, and that's why they were at the C-level. And then some weaknesses are just sort of normal skills, and occasionally fatal flaws, things that they were known by. And so we had to work on those fatal flaws. But again, they, these C-level, somewhat ADHD guys had these enormous strengths for business acumen and strategy and, and whatever. Um, and for the other things, they accommodated. They had secretaries to help with the organization and time management, you know. And so I think that's the general process. For those that are truly creative at that executive level, they've got to find people that can help them with the other stuff that they're not very good at. And that's really, we want to use that strength and harness it as much as possible. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I know I need I need to come to one of your yoga classes. I'm gonna try and come to the, I think the goat yoga one is where I want to start. <laughs> Since you're in Utah, we're both in Utah, so I need to come to one of your classes soon. And I can't wait. And I, you know, I do really appreciate what you talk about the end of a yoga class and having that time. Mm. I I find that so valuable, and I really don't like it when yoga teachers skip that. <laughs> so so thank you for bringing that up, and thank you so much for this interview and coming on today to talk with us. Okay. Tell everybody where they can find you. Absolutely. So uh, as you say, I'm I'm in private practice uh, downtown Salt Lake and Sugar House, and then I uh, on the web at neurodevelop.com. N-e-u-r-o develop.com. I'm sure you'll have it on your website with this podcast. Um, I think also, so people know, I, mean, I do a lot of consulting for client families, for individuals, like looking for neuropsychological testing to evaluate and diagnose, but then also working on the coaching side, helping adolescents and even adults or executives figure the, all of this out and help them be successful in their life. That's what I really feel called to do in my life. That's why I teach yoga, because 
I feel like I'm a resource for a lot of people. I have a lot of knowledge and a, a lot of personal understanding of these struggles. And so I'm happy to help. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this interview today with Dr. Parth Gandhi. To learn more about him, you can go to thespadoctor.com, go to the podcast page with his interview, and you'll find all the information and links in the show notes, as well as a transcription for the podcast. And while you're there, I invite you to join the Spot Doctor community so you don't miss any of our upcoming shows. And if you haven't already gotten your customized skin report, you can do that at theskinquiz.com. Find out what information your skin is trying to tell you about your health and what you can do about it at theskinquiz.com. Also, I invite you to join me on social media, on Facebook, Pinterest, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Join the conversation there, and I'll see you next time on the Spot Actor Podcast.